Welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. I'm your host, Jean McCarthy. I am author of the newly released Unpickled Holiday Survival Guide, Staying Alcohol-Free During the Festive Season. It's a book that's available now on Amazon in paperback and ebook, also available on Apple Books and Kobo, and by order through your favorite neighborhood bookstore. And I want to give a shout out to Three Trees books in Seahurst, Washington, who is stocking the book. Thank you very much. I really appreciate that. Um, I also blog about recovery at unpickledblog.com, and it's almost nine years now since I started that blog. That was on my very first day of recovery. I started writing about it. And if you want to put a face to go along with this voice of mine that you know through the podcast, I happen to have posted a video last week on my blog. So if you go to unpickledblog.com, Look for the blog post, uh, most recent blog post called Happy Friday Unboxing Video, and uh, and you can see that little clip of me saying hello via video. Um, so that's it for updates for me. I want to get right to today's guest. Um, today's guest is Jessica Foodie, and Jessica is a registered nurse and a certified professional coach, and is she recovers designated certified professional recovery coach. And since childhood, Jess experienced a lot of anxiety, and as an adult, she suffered from disordered eating and low self-esteem, and uh, she started medicating some of those things with alcohol. But when she stopped numbing the pain and started working through what was really going on, she began to recover, and Jessica is here to tell us her story today. Hi, Jessica. Welcome to the Bubble Hour. Hey, Jean. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad you are here, and I rushed you right into this interview. We had no time to pre-chat. <laughs> so as the starting music is about to roll, Jessica's like, so by the way, do, do people um, like start their story like from birth, or where should I start? And I was like, sorry, got to go. <laughs> I mean, I can I'm tell so you sorry. from birth. I just don't know if I'm maybe kind well, of you know what? Honestly, sometimes that is where we need to start our story because sometimes that that is where it starts. But um, it sounds like you really kind of were dealing with some stuff since early childhood. So um, that may be where you make sense for you to start your story. Um, but let's get to know you a little bit. First of all, tell us about yourself and where you live. Like, tell me the elevator pitch. Now, I have met you in person, so I happen to know <laughs> you're absolutely just a little adorable ray of sunshine and oh, uh, you have a smile that lights up the room. These are things you're not going to say about yourself, so I have to say this for yeah, you. Yeah, no, just why don't you keep talking? This is where you <laughs> feel really good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, all right. Well, so I live in Chicago. Um, that's where I live. A little bit about myself. Um, I am two and a half years sober. Um, and while 
you know, I do consider myself like sobriety is a huge part of my journey. Like I wouldn't be here obviously unless I was sober. Um, I believe that my story and my recovery is so much bigger than, you know, just sobriety. Um, and it's really cool to be able to talk about it and share it because especially on your show, Gene, because, um, you know, when I got sober, um, you know, I needed other women's stories to carry me through and I was on a She Recovers retreat and they, they told me about the bubble hour and I just remember coming back, you know, 15 days sober, 30 days sober and just like listening to this podcast like over and over and just being so inspired. I remember taking notes when I would hear women's stories of like things that they would say and, um, you know, I just promised myself that once I started to heal and recover that I would be able to do that for other women, that I would help other women and share my story as well. So, um, for many reasons, it feels really cool to be able to do this today. Oh, that is so lovely. I love that you took notes. I love that. But isn't it true how sometimes we hear something and we're like, oh, yes, that is it. That is the nugget I need. You just, I can totally see it, how you just, like I sometimes will just repeat things over in my mind when I hear something mm-hmm. that completely captures an idea or, or something I couldn't quite put my finger on about recovery. So I love that you did that. So you must be a real student of life then, are you? Are you um, the kind of person who is oh my gosh. a speaker yeah, and, and a I learner? Also, I love being in recovery and I love coaching because there's just so much to learn. It's always yeah. like, it's like you just, there's so many different things that can help us. And there's so many insights that you see. And, you know, the longer that I go on this journey, the more it's like, oh, I didn't, I didn't see that, you know, until now. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's just, uh, the best journey I've ever been on and, and I love it. Oh, that is so great. And now you're sharing it with others. Well, let's start with your story. And then of course I have some questions for you afterwards. So tell us about how you came to where you're at today and what led you here. Yeah, definitely. So um, I was born in a suburb of Chicago. Um, I live in the city now, but I was born in a suburb of Chicago and I had like a pretty normal childhood, um, you know, upper middle class. My dad is a doctor and my mom is a teacher and I have a really loving older sister who to this day is my best friend. Um, you know, I had like the picture perfect childhood, you know, I did really well in school. I had lots of friends. Um, there was nothing that, you know, you would point to and be like, Oh, you know, that's, that's why she's an alcoholic. And I do use that term. I know some people don't like it, but for me, um, it works. Um, but yeah, there was nothing that for a long time that I could pinpoint and be like, Oh, that's what makes me an alcoholic. And, you know, the more, of course, that I think about my story, it's like, you know, I just remember though, being a kid, um, and just having this feeling of just like being really painfully shy, really uncomfortable in my own skin at a really young age. And, um, you know, just feeling like, even though I looked like I fit in, I never felt like I really did. You know, I never felt like I fit in. And, um, when I was in fifth grade, 
I started missing a lot of school because I would get these migraine headaches and they thought I had a brain tumor and um, I underwent like extensive testing, you know, MRIs, things like that. And um, thankfully I didn't have a brain tumor, but what I did have was just like crippling anxiety as a 12 year old. And, um, you know, that's a huge sign to me that, you know, I was a 12 year old already like in need of relief you know, looking for something to help me feel okay. And I just remember having so many feelings um, that I just didn't know how to process. And part of it was I had so many feelings that these feelings seemed scary at that age. And I felt like I was bad for having them, you know, like they were uncomfortable, a lot of anxiety, a lot of fear. And, you know, I didn't know what to do with them. And because of that, you know, I didn't know, oh, this is, this is probably just an anxiety disorder. I interpreted it as, you know, I was bad for having these. And, um, I share that because it's a big part of my story. You know, I, when I went to see a therapist, when I got sober, um, she said, you know, do you have shame about being, you know, an addict or an alcoholic? And I said, no, not at all. (laughs) My shame started when I was 12, you know, and, um, you know, at a really young age, I just felt like who I was, wasn't okay. And these feelings weren't okay. And, um, you know, at a young age, I started living a dual life. You know, I knew how to say the right thing to be well-liked. I knew how to fit in. I knew how to kind of shape shift. Um, I knew how to, um, blend in, you know, and my whole life, you know, up until I got into recovery was kind of just trying to fit in and not really let people see me. And, you know, the way that alcohol works into this, you know, when I was in high school is when I discovered alcohol and, you know, I've heard of people describe their relationship with alcohol as kind of this like magical elixir. And when they drink it, it was like off to the races. And for me, that was never my experience. You know, I was this really introverted high schooler, really uncomfortable in my own skin, you know, really wanted to connect with other people and alcohol provided that solution. Um, I remember when I first started drinking, it just made me feel like what I felt like a normal person must feel like all the time, (laughs) you know, like, all these crazy thoughts that I had that were always rushing through my head. Like I couldn't have a conversation with somebody and be present um, because I was so self-conscious and my heart would be racing and I'd feel uncomfortable. And alcohol really just kind of turned down the noise in my head and allowed me to be more of the person that I actually wanted to be. Like I could be funny and I could be um, you know, somewhat confident. You know, I could talk to people, I could feel somewhat connected and like I belonged a little bit and um, I'm sure you've heard this phrase like it works until it doesn't you know and it wasn't like this aha thing where it's like okay I'll just drink you know that this is this is going to be my thing it wasn't that it was like oh okay like you know I started self-medicating a little bit um, you know like when things would come up where I would be anxious like before high school dances which I'm sure a lot of people drink before those, but it was like, I needed to have a few drinks before I could do things socially. Um, and that's kind of where it started. You know, I didn't drink alcoholically in high school. I, I'm a slow learner. I put two and two together. It took me a while to get to a place where I could realize like, Oh, if I, I drank, I'd feel comfortable. Um, 
you know, so it really wasn't, it didn't escalate until I got older. Um, when I went into college, I was determined to be like this perfect student, you know, a lot of, a lot of my story too is perfectionism. If I can just look perfect, act perfect, be perfect. It didn't matter that I had all of these feelings that I didn't know what to do with. It didn't matter that I felt like such a mess on the inside. It didn't matter that, you know, a lot of the time I hated myself, you know, and was really just uncomfortable with who I was, you know, the better that I can make the outside look, um, you know, that's all that really mattered to me because I just felt so, uh, so, um, messy on the inside, I guess is the best way to put it. And when I got to college, you know, again, my perfectionism kicked in hardcore and I, I was in a major that was really competitive. Nursing school is a really competitive major. And, you know, it was like, I'll just be the best at this thing. And I can just brush past, you know, all these feelings that I'm having and I can just be the best nursing student, which now sounds so funny. I mean, it's, it's nursing school, but at the time I took it so seriously and I put so much pressure on myself. It it truly did feel like an abusive relationship with myself. Like I remember if I got anything less than a hundred on a test, I would berate myself. And, um, you know, I, I, say now that I studied alcoholically, like I would wake up at six in the morning and study till six o'clock at night. And obviously that's a lot of pressure to put on yourself. And I started to crack and I ended up getting a script of clonopin from my psychiatrist. And, you know, I remember when I took that and I felt finally at ease in my own skin um, and it felt good, but, you know, the issue with having chronic anxiety that is debilitating is once someone gives you something where it's like, oh my gosh, like I feel good. It was like, I just wanted to feel really good and really free. And, um, you know, no one ever taught me about like working through anxiety or working through uncomfortable feelings. Um, you know, that wasn't something that was ever even suggested to me. Um, so when I found this clonopin, it was like, oh, okay, you know, I'll just take this, you know, whenever I feel anxiety, which was all the time, you know, they say, take it PRN, you know, as needed for anxiety. Well, I felt anxious all the time. So I was taking it all the time. And, um, you know, it just, it was my solution for a long time was clonopin. And then I would take Xanax and just any, any pill that would calm me down, I would take, um, you know, I remember not even leaving, like I wouldn't leave my apartment unless I had clonopin in my purse. And, you know, it just makes me really sad that that was how I lived. Um, you know, and, you know, I graduated college with honors and, you know, from the outside, it looked so great. I had an older boyfriend who adored me and, you know, I did really well in school when, nursing school is something that a lot of people struggle with. Some people even fail out. Like it's a very hard thing to do well in. And, you know, when I graduated, it was like on the outside, everything looked so good, but I had no clue who I was because I had been numbing my feelings for years. And I also had zero confidence in myself because anytime 
something came up that was challenging or required me to show up, I would just pop a pill. So, you know, me just relying on myself, you know, um, I just didn't believe in myself and I truly felt like some feeling would just like kill me. Um, you know, I've heard that fear of feeling like is a feeling and I, I was just terrified to feel. And, you know, when I got out of college, you know, I had a lot of issues. I did have distorted eating, as you mentioned, like pretty much anything, you know, I binge ate, I really restricted, um, you know, I just was again, looking for things to feel okay. And, um, you know, I would say my drinking turned, um, from, you know, social drinking with some self-medicating to really problem drinking in my twenties. And, you know, it's just a time where I think a lot of people feel lost, like a lot of women feel lost. And I lost that identity of being the perfect student. I was now single, um, you know, I lost that relationship that kind of kept me, I don't know, kept me safe. And, you know, I just didn't know who I was. And when I was 26, I went through a really painful breakup. Um, I met a guy who I thought was the one, unfortunately, he didn't think I was the one, but, you know, that relationship, the ending of it resulted in so many painful feelings like rejection, a resentment, um, things that I just couldn't let go of. Like I remember wanting to, but I didn't know how. And I just fell into full on like victim mode and feeling sorry for myself. Self-pity was a big thing and just feeling completely lost and just consumed with these feelings of like hurt and pain and rejection and just like fear of being alone, you know, um, that it went from, I think, social kind of self-medicating drinking to really drinking to want to escape what I was feeling. And, you know, I would go into work and I would come home and I would have, you know, two or three glasses of wine, often with Clonopin. And, um, you know, it just started to escalate to things where it was like, I, I was starting to unravel and I was starting to lose myself. Like, you know, I'm somebody who's always kind of prided myself on living my values. And, you know, I was calling it to work, um, just not coming in. Um, I was blacking out. That was really scary. I would go out with guys on first dates, you know, because my next solution was just to meet a guy and get married. And I thought that would make everything okay. Um, and I would go out on these dates and I'd be so nervous because I had such bad social anxiety. My social anxiety got worse as I got older because I had no clue who I was. And I really needed other people to approve of me. I needed other people to like me because I really just hated myself. And I cared so much about, you know, going on this date and having some guy I don't even know, like validate my existence. And I remember like I would shake before leaving the house and I would pop Clonopin. I would already have had like two or three drinks by the time I left and I'd be on this first date and I would, I would black out and nothing ever happened to me. Like, thank God. But, um, you know, it was really scary. And, you know, I was just, losing the the woman that I wanted to be and um, just unraveling. And, you know, it wasn't until I was, I think, 28 years old where I had like an aha moment. I actually had a client ask me like, what was your tipping point when you knew that you just had to stop drinking? Because I think maybe, I think she wanted to know because then she would know for herself and 
there were a lot of things that were just, you know, I was miserable. I was, my anxiety was increasing. Um, I was really unhappy. I was isolating more and more. Also, no one knew how bad it was. Like the worse I felt, the better the image I projected on the outside. Like, yes, I missed work, but no one really knew what was going on. Um, no one even knew I really had a drinking problem because a lot of this I did in secret. Um, you know, I guess if you had asked the guys I dated, they would have <laughs> probably said something. But like in terms of friends and family, like no one knew. And um, by the end, I was just so isolated and in pain and feeling lonely and anxious. And my tipping point or my aha moment was when I was 28 years old, I, um, I went on a date with a guy who was just really nice and I just wanted things to work with him. And I just remember waking up the next day after having blacked out on that date and nothing happened, but it was just like, I did it again. And I just remember feeling like I will never get what I want in life. The things that matter most to me, I will never get if I keep drinking like this. And that was a really like, powerful thing. And what I really wanted was to be a partner. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have kids. And I just knew all of those things. Like I would never get if I kept drinking. And, um, you know, I, I Googled, am I an alcoholic? (laughs) Cause that seemed like a good, good move at that point. Um, I had Googled it many times, but I found some article that said, Um, If you can stop drinking for a year on your own without AA, without therapy, then you're not an alcoholic. And, you know, my, my alcoholic brain was like, perfect. I'll just stop drinking so that I can come back to drinking. And, you know, I, um, I moved home at, I think it was 28 or 29 and um, I stopped drinking for a year and it was really hard. You know, I, I confided in my parents, you know, that I thought I had a drinking problem. They were shocked you know, a lot of my close friends were weirded out that I was sober because no one knew, um, you know, so the fact that I was sober was like, why I don't get it. Um, but I was able to stop drinking for a year. I started running a lot, which helped with my anxiety. I started posting on social media, which gave me an outlet. You know, I lived my life with these walls so high up that, to be able to share on Instagram, um, what I was going through and what I was feeling, you know, it was just really great. It's, it's interesting that that's what I chose at that age, um, social media, but it really helped me get sober. And, um, you know, it was great. I mean, sobriety is really, really good. Um, you know, my anxiety started to go down, everything in my life got better. And, uh, you know, after that one year of being sober, you know, you would think like you'd be counting down the days of like, okay, I've been sober for this long. I can drink this day. And that's what I thought it was going to be when I made this commitment to be sober for a year. But the truth was I didn't miss it at all. Like I didn't even want to come back to it. Like it wasn't something that really crossed my mind. Um, except I met a guy who was a big partier and I thought he was the one and I didn't think that he would want to be with me unless I drank. And I really still, um, had no sense of who I was. You know, I was still that girl in college who just didn't know herself, you know, and, 
you know, while yes, I was sober for a whole year, I really hadn't done a lot of the inner work that is required for, I think, real recovery. And I didn't see that. Like I thought, okay, well, the solution is I'll just stop drinking and my life got better, which it did. But I didn't really look at, um, I didn't really dig deep. I didn't really see like why I was drinking. I didn't really see the whole picture of things, which is why I so believe in, um, you know, if somebody is on this journey, working with a coach or working with a therapist, because, you know, that experience taught me that sobriety and recovery are two totally different things. And, um, needless to say, I started drinking again and it was a slow burn. It wasn't so obvious that it was a problem. Um, you know, I wasn't blacking out right away. I wasn't doing things that were out of alignment with my values, but it did within like right away when I started drinking, it just felt like this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. Like it felt inauthentic. Like I, I, really loved being sober and I loved being able to connect with people and I loved being able to feel true to myself and show up as who I really am. And all of those things went away when I started drinking. Um, you know, even though it wasn't so obvious, um, it started to, to become more apparent to me that it was escalating and that it wasn't good and that I was going to be right back where I started. And, um, it's really incredible, but I was on Facebook. Um, this is maybe eight months into my, um, I call it my relapse, even though I guess it's a relapse, but, um, into my relapse. And I saw something on Facebook for a, she recovers retreat. And the funny thing is like, I didn't really know about she recovers some girl on Instagram had mentioned it. So I started following them and, uh, I didn't do yoga the retreat was a yoga retreat on a beach with other women in recovery. I didn't do yoga. I wasn't truly in recovery because I wasn't sober. Um, I didn't consider myself in recovery, I guess is the word I would use. And I never gone on a retreat before and I had never left the country by myself. <laughs> so the fact that I was like, yes, I need to be there. Um, you know, looking back now, like I know that wasn't me. Like I know that was, a spiritual experience. Like I needed to be there and something got me there. Like even having the courage to do all of that, um, that wasn't me. And when I got there, you know, I met real life sober women, which, you know, I had never met a woman who was sober before, which sounds crazy, but you know, I was just like, I just remember meeting these women and just being like, they had this quiet confidence that I wanted for myself. Um, they seemed really at ease in their own skin and just like happy. And when I left the retreat, something had shifted. Um, I knew I was going back to a boyfriend who drank a lot. And it was like the first time in my life where I didn't care about what other people thought of me. I didn't care about losing him. I mean, I did, but I didn't, you know, because I knew that I needed to start choosing me. And that meant getting sober. That meant um, listening to my heart. And my heart was telling me I needed to stop drinking. Um, you know, I, I've had a lot of people be like, so no one told you you need to stop or your friends didn't express concern, your family. You know, no one said anything. But I just knew in my heart that, that I needed to get sober again. Like, that's, that's where I needed to be. And my life was just so much better sober. And 
you know, um, to anyone who's listening, like you don't have to hit rock bottom, you know, like if you're miserable, if you're questioning it, if you're just feeling like it's out of alignment with your truth or who you are, like trust that because I'm so grateful I did because after that retreat, I haven't had a drink since. So, you know, trusting myself and listening to that inner voice has really been what's guided me throughout my entire recovery. And, um, you know, today I have a life that looks very much so the same, which I always say that, but I guess actually on the outside, it looks pretty different. You know, I run a, I run my own coaching business. I have tons of new friends. Um, you know, I'm dating a guy who's sober, um, which is way different. So I guess my life doesn't look completely the same, but, but what I was going to say was it feels totally different. And, um, I didn't know that, you know, when I got sober, I was only focusing on what I was losing, which was kind of this life that I knew. Um, and I didn't think about this life that I was gaining, which was so much better than anything I could have imagined. You know, um, today I wake up feeling like grateful, connected. I feel a lot of love. I feel tons of joy, which I never really felt joy before because I was always numb. Um, and I feel really in line with my truth, which I never did. So that's my story, Jean. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, uh, I'm like a sobriety cheerleader, I guess, you know, and I'm, <laughs> I'm very, um, passionate about women choosing this for themselves and not feeling like they have to wait until it becomes this huge problem where, you know, they have to go to rehab or they have, they're losing a job, they're getting a DUI, you know, um, I think on my website, it says like, it's never too late or too early to make a change. And I, I believe in that a hundred percent. Well, it's interesting you say that because I've been thinking a lot lately and, and it's come up a few times on recent episodes too, talking about getting sober a little bit earlier in the trajectory trajectory and maybe rather than using words like sobriety, even if it's super early in the trajectory before you even really feel like you have an addiction issue, um, Mm -hmm. you know, then there's the, the earlier you are, the more choices a person has and the more freedom you have and the more ways you can approach it. Um, so we talk about being gluten-free, we talk about being dairy-free, um, being alcohol-free by choice is a really empowering life choice, but it also comes with some challenges too, doesn't it? Because when, when, um, people do have a really low bottom or an experience that really shakes them, sometimes that becomes, um, of the motivation to sustain recovery because that's the they never want to return to that so how do you work with people to sustain um their motivation if they don't have you know a sort of um, shame-based identity or i mean not that those are healthy things anyway to be pushing off against but how do how do people to help stay motivated in the absence of some like terrible experience Yeah, that's a really great point because I do think it's enough pain gets people to stop drinking, right? Like enough experiences where you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm doing that. Or so it is harder, I think, for women who have higher bottoms to stop drinking because maybe you haven't had those like horribly painful, embarrassing, shame-ridden moments that other women have had. Um, Yeah. And 
You know, I do get a lot of women who reach out to me just because, you know, their story is somewhat similar to mine. Although I've worked with a lot of women who have had like DUIs and have gone to treatment and stuff. Um, I think the way to really motivate oneself, like if, if you're listening and you're in that place, it's just thinking like, instead of being motivated by fear, you know, like fear of, oh my gosh, like what will happen if I keep drinking? It's kind of motivating yourself from this place of like love, you know, like I love myself enough to know this isn't working and make a list of like everything that you want for yourself in your life and be like, would I be more likely to get these things if I was sober? You know, cause that's really what I did. It was like, you know, I want to be present for my life. You know, I want to have like rich connected friendships. I want to learn how to love myself. I want to learn how to feel feelings. And, you know, once you start going down that path and you start having all these like small successes that you would never be able to do if you were still drinking, like that feels really great. You know what I mean? Like I had a client today who, you know, she's six months sober and she had a relatively, you know, high bottom. And now, you know, she's looking into starting her own business. Um, it's not recovery related, but like she never probably would be able to do that if she was still drinking. So does that answer your question? Yeah, definitely. And it, it sounds like um, you help people look forward rather than backwards to gain motivation. Does that sound right? Um, you know, ask, like planning for the future or thinking about how you want to feel now or how, where you want to get to tomorrow. Does that include alcohol or not? Versus looking back and saying, wow, that was really bad back then. I don't want to go back there. So I can't drink, you know? Um, I feel like that's, and that's a valid, that's a, that's a valid alternative to just looking back. Sometimes I feel like in recovery meetings, there's a lot of looking back and, and that's mm-hmm. part of the process in some recovery programs is to, is to reflect on how bad it was to help us remember why we don't drink. Right. But I really like that idea of looking forward or being in the now and saying like, how do I want to feel? And does that include alcohol or not? Um, and it's a reminder too, that it's something we we choose every day. It's not as if we make one choice for the rest of our life. We really do have to choose recovery every day and re-engage with it um, continuously. Don't you feel? Yeah, definitely. And maybe I just sound like overly positive and cheerful and like, yeah, you know, figure out what you want to be in a year and you can work towards that if you're sober. I mean, I also feel like this is a disease that will kill me if I drink, you know, like a lot of this, I don't want to say is motivated by fear, but like, I know that this will get really dark. Like, I believe that if I pick up today, um, I'll eventually die from this. It's just a question of when. So a lot of people are surprised that I refer to myself as an alcoholic, but to me, like an alcoholic is somebody, if they drink, um, it's a really serious problem. And if they drink, they might die. And that's why I use that term to describe myself because I feel like if I just say I'm sober curious, or if I just say I'm alcohol free, or if I just say I'm you know, doing the sober thing. Well, yes, I think that sounds better because <laughs> it doesn't sound so heavy, but like my brain needs to know that this is heavy, this is serious, and this is something that I need to work at every single day. Because the first time I did this journey, it's just like, oh, I'm sober, you know, it's working for me. But I don't think that level of 
severity was there. And I almost need that to like, to remind myself that this is really severe and this is something I need to work at every single day. Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, it does do. And uh, it's funny though, because for myself, when I got sober, I really didn't Mm -hmm. like the idea of being an alcoholic. Like I kept drinking (laughs) because I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I didn't want to accept that title for myself. And yet as time went on, um, I mean, and I quit anyway, I was like, you know, I kind of had that acceptance of like, this isn't going away and it's getting worse and I don't want to go where this is obviously going to take me. Um, And and as time went on, I did start to find more of a relationship with words like sobriety and alcoholism or alcoholic because um, yeah. because they did sort of lock in a mindset that I found useful. Um, so I totally get what you mean. And I feel like it's something people can decide for themselves. And again, it's totally, can, yeah. it can evolve over time too. I feel like our relationship with language and concepts and ideas and programs for that matter. I mean, some pe- I was like, hugely resistant to programs mm-hmm. for many years and eventually I kind okay. of found a place for them in my recovery. But it also goes the other way. I've talked to lots of people who their programs really were so important in their life. And over time, they sort of found that things shifted and they found other things that were a better fit for later stages in their life. So it really, there there is room to evolve and change as long as yeah, we remain I mean, I think committed. Right. And I think too, like if I had to say on day one, when I started this journey at like 28 or even after that retreat, like, Hey, I'm Jess and I'm an alcoholic. Like I wouldn't have done that because I already had so much shame about just like, I think who I, who I was and how I felt about myself that to have to choose that label, it would have been like, no, I'm just not doing this. Like, I'll just keep trying to drink, even though it's not working for me. So I think whatever, whatever label speaks to somebody like, you know, that's totally fine. Um, yeah, because who would want to choose that? I mean, so yeah, I think that the most beautiful thing about recovery is that it can be totally authentic to us, right? So, you know, I have a client who I recently started working with and she doesn't refer to herself or she didn't at least when we first started working. She didn't use the term um recovery, she used the term transformation. So I think it's truly whatever speaks to you, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How, t- talk to me about um, sobriety dates. When you had a year of sobriety and then an, followed yeah. by a, a period of using and then returning to um, mm-hmm. alcohol-free or sobriety, did you, do, you, do you maintain a recovery date and a sobriety date or where do you count your sobriety date from and how oh, do you feel about that? Term. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I started this journey at 28. I'm 33 now. Um you know, even though I came back to drinking, I feel like really this began my journey with recovery at 28. Um, but yeah, I do. I do have a sobriety date and it's the date that I was flying to my recovery retreat. So it's really easy for me to remember. Um, but yeah, I, I like having a sobriety birthday. I like being able to celebrate. <laughs> I don't know. I just, it's important to me to have one, but Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you have a sobriety date? I do. I, I count from the first day that I quit drinking. Um, 
Mm-hmm. And because it, for me, it was a kind of a straight line. It's, it's easy to maintain okay, that. Yeah. But I know there's people who um, uh, count both because, um, well, one friend of mine has had, you know, in the last year, you know, she says she's had like 360 days of sobriety. Yeah. But, but um, if, she, you know, she's probably had like, if she were getting chips, she would have had several chips this year, several first time chips. Yeah. Because, you know, there's, you know, she'll have a stretch of sobriety and then drink and then another stretch of sobriety and drink. And so, um, so I think it's really important to sort of celebrate the milestone when we quit for good. And for me, that like the honoring that time, I wouldn't want to roll back to zero. So I, I think of it that way, but for other people, they um, have different practices based on what they're doing because they do want to honor sort of the journey, the time that they have had recovery. Um, mm-hmm. You don't want to sort of throw away all the sober days. I don't know. Do you know what I'm saying? That um, Oh, yeah. And also, for like, some people, it's motivating. And sometimes some people it experience so much shame. It's like, like, yeah, you know, like if you've been sober for I don't know, 11 months and you have one drink and then it's like, oh, I got to start over at day zero. I mean, sometimes that feeling of like, oh, I'm such a failure. I let myself down. That will actually make people drink more. So it's like, you know, yeah, I have a love-hate relationship with people counting days because, you know, I think that it's just celebrating all of your all of your days sober. But then at the same time, I think if it motivates you to stay on this course by having a sobriety date, then that's great too. So, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. yeah, I think any day that you're sober is worth celebrating. And if you can get two weeks and you have one drink, like focus on the two weeks that you had, not the, not the one drink, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I like that too. I, I do agree with that. And I think it's like we were talking about using the labels, like, do what's going to support you and build up your positive feelings. I agree with that too. I'm curious about something mm-hmm. else in your story, Jess, and that that is that you talked about mixing your medication and alcohol. And as a nurse, <laughs> you had to know yeah, the dangers of doing that. Does that speak to, were you in total denial about the danger you were putting yourself in? Or do you think there's an element of being, mm, almost passively suicidal, you know, like, or so disconnected wow. from ourselves that we're don't care what kind of danger we're putting ourselves in. What was going on there for yeah. you? And how do you see it now? That's a really great question. You know, I don't think I've ever had anyone ask me that, but um, maybe I've just never shared that, but yeah, I mean, I think that I just felt like my anxiety was so bad that I needed to have both. And again, like addiction isn't logical. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I guess that's all I can say. It's like addiction isn't logical. And while I knew that this was dangerous, I mean, I would also take Adderall at times. I'd also take sleeping pills and just mix everything. And Yeah. I mean, there's a difference between knowing something and, you know, I think that addiction is just one of those crazy things when it's like, you look back and it's like, why did I do that? Or, you know, but, you know, and again, like doctors get addicted, nurses get addicted. So it's not a question of knowing. I think just when, you know, that kind of takes over, you don't see things clearly. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I truly, yeah. I truly don't think I cared about myself, you know, at all. Like, I don't think yeah. that if I hadn't woke up one day, I mean, that wasn't a big concern to me. Like I had just kind of, you know, unraveled to a point where I didn't care about myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's what, that's what I meant by that term passively suicidal. I feel like mm-hmm. I, I think, I think that for myself too, that I, I would never have said I was suicidal and I would never have <laughs> been openly, you know, admitting, admitting to that. But I really do think when we're yeah. taking such risks with ourselves, there's got to be some part of us that's just kind of lost or dis- disconnected in that way and, and doesn't care about ourselves. I mean, I, I think, I think I just had no concept of myself anymore. I was completely lost to myself mm-hmm. And so that person was just disappearing slowly anyway. Um, And I I heard shades of that in in what you said there. So I was curious about how that was manifesting for you. But it's so true what you say about people in healthcare and mental health professionals. Um, They they are not immune to addiction for sure. And also we're not thinking straight when we're in active addiction either. So there's a lot going on there. Um, yeah, totally. I mean, I think it's like, you know, when we look back, it's like, sometimes we can just have such harsh self judgments about like, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe, you know, I treated that person that way. I can't believe I treated myself, but it's like, I mean, addiction truly is just like, you know, you're just not operating on all fronts. You know, you're not seeing everything clearly. Like, you know, when I look back on that girl that I was when I was 20, I don't look back and be like, oh my God, she was this horrible human being who hurt a lot of people or whatever. Like, I just think like, man, like I was really hurting, you know, and my recovery now is just like loving myself, you know, and kind of almost making up for that lost time when I just abandoned myself over and over. Like, um, you know, recovery to me really is about like self-love and self-acceptance. And just, you know, when I do look back, like I look back with the eyes of compassion and not judgment. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Jesse mentioned um, going to therapy and working through anxiety um, versus just numbing it with medication or alcohol. How do you do that? How do you work through those difficult feelings and, um, and the physical manifestation of anxiety. What does that look like for you? Yeah. I mean, my whole life was really trying to avoid discomfort, right? Trying to avoid feeling anxious. Um, And now it's like, um, really, it's a lot of my work that I've done um, with Buddhism, you know, kind of just seeing what's here and just allowing it to be here. Like now when I get anxious, it's like, oh, okay, like my heart's racing, getting some tingling in my hands, you know, uh, maybe some, you know, some thoughts, but it's just thoughts and it's just some feelings. Like it's not going to kill me. It's just what's here. Like it's allowed to be here. You know, that's something that I learned in Buddhism is like, you know, so much of what we do is we resist, right? And we resist what's here and we resist it. And we can resist in a lot of ways. You know, we can just say, I don't want to feel anxious or we can eat or we can, uh, you know, engage in some other self-destructive thing. Or you can just be like, oh, like, hey, anxiety, hey, old friend, like you're here to visit. Like I thought you'd show up, 
you know, you're, you're welcome to stay as long as you want. And that's really how I treat my anxiety. Like this old friend that I've known my whole life that is just here to visit and it's going to pass. And I don't, I don't have anxiety about having anxiety anymore. Like, you know, I do so many things that are way outside of my comfort zone. And I, I, I get anxious before I do them because that's a normal, natural human feeling. And, um, and I'm allowed to feel anxious and I'm allowed to experience anxiety and know I'm not a bad person for feeling that. So, um, you know, anxiety is never going to go away, or I should say it's, it's never going to just disappear, at least for me. That's my truth. But in no way is my life um, affected by it anymore, which is really like a miracle. What about shyness, Jess? You mentioned about being shy as a, as a kid. Um, do you think that, um, and to, my husband is, was quite shy, and I mm-hmm. think both of us by nature are a little bit introverted. Um, do you think that that makes it harder to ask for help, to go walk into a meeting, to sit down with a therapist? How, what role do you see that as playing in, in um, people asking yeah, for help when they need it? that's a really great question. Well, I do think the the way that we heal from things is by talking about it, um, you know, and, you know, I did, I think, want to do recovery on my own because, well, one, I didn't think I would fit in at a 12-step meeting because I didn't think my bottom was low enough. But two, you know, when I did walk in, it was like, oh my gosh, these people are are sharing so much. (laughs) And when I saw someone giving a lead, which is essentially, you know, sharing your story publicly, um, that was literally my worst nightmare. And, um, yeah, I think that being shy and, you know, it's more so than just being shy. Like, you know, I just live my life with walls up where I just wouldn't share anything real about myself. Um, I had a lot of shame, so I think that we do get better when we start to really share who we are, um, whether you're shy or not, you know, when you start to feel, share what you're feeling, share the things that you've done, share the, you know, just share whatever you're going through. Because the issue with being shy, at least for me, was that I never really felt connected. You know, like if you're not willing to authentically share who you are, what you're going through, or your truth you'll never feel seen and heard. You'll never feel connected and you'll never feel a part of. And those are really like, to me, vital human needs that you, you need in life, but you also need to thrive in recovery. Like you need to feel connected. So, um, does that make sense? Like I think pushing past your shyness so that you can connect is so worth it. Definitely. Yeah. And here's just a, a tip too about most recovery programs and there are a lot of programs. If you're in a smaller community, a 12 step program might be the only program in town, but in, in Mm -hmm. bigger centers or even medium sized centers, there's usually a variety of things, smart recovery, um, refuge recovery, AA celebrate recovery. Um, There's often a, a number of different groups and most of them will have a contact number or contact person. If you, if you search them for your community and, I've, I've never made use of this, but I do know that um, the groups that I know of will do this. If you mm-hmm. call that number, 
someone will volunteer to come and like have a coffee with you and then take you to a meeting. So if just walking into a group of strangers by yourself is your worst nightmare, and I'm raising my hand as I say this because it literally (laughs) is for me, um, uh, that is one approach. And I think for me, that might've been a lot easier. That might've been a little bit of a a gentler entry (laughs) into a room full of strangers is to meet someone one-on-one first and then go with them. Um, well, it's so intimidating, right? Yeah, definitely. Uh, and uh, here's just a sidebar. The first time I went to a, a meeting, well, I went once in a city where mm-hmm. I knew no one and I just like okay. walked in and listened. That was okay. But in my own community, yeah. when I was really, really scared to go, um, I walked into the room and there was like all these people and they seemed to be having a party and it turned out it was the church <laughs> board was having a board meeting and I was like um is this a women's meeting and they were like no honey that's upstairs you know and they all all the heads swiveled to turn and see who was who was looking for the women's meeting and I thought oh my god this is the worst and so anyway um I walked into basically the wrong meeting before I went into the right one and I survived I lived through that (laughs) yeah Um, totally I know it's so funny that you say that because when I went to my first one, they all thought I was a student. (laughs) They thought I was just a student there. And I like didn't have the courage to be like, no, I need this. Um, And another thing too, like, you know, for the listeners, like, you know, I, I tell clients this too, like, you don't have to share, you know, like you can pass or you just don't have to say anything like Like if all you want to do is just literally go and sit and just check it out, like maybe you don't want to have this focus on you, like you can do that. You know, it doesn't have to be this like all in thing um, right away. Yeah, that's true. And honestly, listening is just a bomb for the soul. It is. I mean, I, I guess if someone's listening to this show, they already kind of know that, but hearing someone else's story really is helpful, even if you're not sharing your own. Um, But oftentimes I think that after something cracks us open as we listen to others too. Mm -hmm. And, and so many people uh, after a sharing circle, I've heard them say, Oh, I wasn't going to say anything. And then, you know, I just, it just felt so good. It just felt so safe to tell my story. And that's a really beautiful experience too. I love that. You talked about perfectionism as being part of your story. And, you know, as you were talking, I've never really made the connection necessarily between perfectionism and shyness, but I can see how they can be connected. I know for me, part of my perfectionism was driven by a sort of, I don't really want to be noticed. So I just want to be perfect so that I don't grab any negative attention. So I don't get any criticism. Um, do you see a connection between those two things and how do you deal with perfectionism now in your life? Do I see connection between perfectionism and what else? Shyness. Shyness. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really easy to like, I shouldn't say easy, but, you know, to say the right thing and, you know, to kind of play a role and get everyone to like you, or I shouldn't say that's easy, but like, if you've done it long enough, like, you know how to kind of shape shift, you know, how to, you know, how to fit in, right? Like you can chameleon yourself into groups. Um, But if you're really shy, you know, actually saying like, Hey, this is who I really am. You know, this is what I'm really about. Um, You know, like for a long time, I was afraid to share with people that I was a recovery coach because it was so, 
true to who I was, yet I was afraid, like, what will people really think of me if I start sharing this? So, um, yeah, I definitely think that perfectionism and shyness can go hand in hand. I mean, I think perfectionism to me was just really this fear of judgment from other people, you know, this Mm -hmm. fear of actually being seen for who I really am. Um, you know, and once I started being okay with who I am and just like loving and embracing myself, my shyness also went down. So, um, you know, once I started to accept myself, I didn't care if people, what the people thought of me, or I didn't feel this need to try to be perfect or to fit in. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if Mm -hmm. that was clear. (laughs) Yeah, it it is. So it it sounds like, and this makes sense as you say that it's really a symptom, right? It's, it's not so much Mm -hmm. a part of who we are as it is a symptom of how we're off base and how we're feeling about ourselves. And as we start to heal that, then that symptom starts to go away. Does that sound true to you? Yeah. I mean, the fear of other people's rejection or the need for other people to approve of me or even the need to fit in, it's like that didn't matter or that hasn't mattered so much to me as I keep going along on this journey because I really love myself and I really, I don't know, like I just, I care, like, am I being authentic to me? And if other people like it or get it, then that's great. And if they don't, like, I don't need to win everyone over anymore. Like, that's not that mm-hmm. important to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. Okay. So how can our listeners find you and learn about your coaching services and uh, learn about you? Yeah, definitely. So my website is jessicafoodie.com and it's F-O-O-D-Y. Um, I'm a foodie. Um, that's my last name. And yeah, um, there's a space, you know, on my website, you know, if you want to reach out, I'm also on social media. Um, and then we also host, if you live in the Chicago area, we, we host, or I should say I host sharing circles, the She Recover sharing circles once a month. Um, and we would love for you to join if you're interested. Um, it's been, we've had a really great turnout. The first two have actually sold out, which is so cool. Um, there's really this need for women to come together and, you know, we would love to have you join. Um, if you do, you know, want to dig deep and, you know, I think reach whatever recovery means to you. Um, I am taking new clients and I'd love to hear from you. Tell me a little bit more about the She Recovers Sharing Circle. What happens there and how can people, do they need to register for that or how do they get involved in that? Yeah, definitely. So we have a group called the She Recovers Sharing Circle Chicago. Um, So it's a private group. So if they want to join that, they can. Um, another thing too, is if you Facebook me, um, it's Jessica Ellen foodie. I don't, I don't know why I use my middle name. Um, that was a college thing. Um, but I also post all about the sharing circle there and yeah, um, the sharing circle is really just, you know, an opportunity for women to come together. It's usually about an hour and a half sometimes a little bit longer and it really gives women an opportunity to feel seen and heard, you know, so that you don't feel disconnected. And we have a topic, um, December is sharing our gifts. Um, and it's really just a way to feel like you can meet other people on the same path. 
Um, a lot of people obviously don't do um, 12-step groups, which is totally okay. But with that, sometimes you can feel like I'm the, I'm the only sober person I know, which isn't a great feeling. Like we need friends and connection from people who are there. So um, if that sounds like you, um, come out. Like it's a really warm and just like loving, really supportive group of women. And we'd love to have you. That's awesome. Thank you. And then I was looking at your website and I noticed you do have a form there, I think, or a button or something if people want to get in touch with you to talk about coaching as well, right? Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for sharing time with us today, Jessica. It's been great getting to know you, to hear your story, and to just, um, you know, chat with you more. It was really lovely. Thank you for spending an hour with us today. Yeah, thanks, Jane, for having me. This is really cool. Awesome. Thank you. All right. So as Jessica said, you can find her at jessicafoodie.com. And um, as I mentioned before, I am doing some, oh, maybe I didn't mention this. I'm putting together some special (laughs) episodes for the Christmas season um, and over the holidays. It's a time when, of course, I need to take a break during that time, but I'm going to make sure that there are lots of new episodes of the Bubble Hour um, available during that time for you, especially some shorter episodes. Um, I don't know about you, but this is a time of year where I tend to hide in the bathroom at parties and like listen to my phone (laughs) or scroll through it or whatever. So uh, I've got something really cool that I'm putting together and um, that'll be coming out later in December. So yeah, that's kind of all the new stuff that's happening here. So everyone take care. I know that uh, it's Thanksgiving next weekend, I believe, right in the U S. So a lot of our listeners are from the States. And so I'm sure that a lot of you are buckling up for the big family dinner and all that that entails. Um, Do take care of yourself as you prepare for that and um, uh, download a few extra episodes in case you do need to hide in the closet and, uh, and listen to some (laughs) bubble hour goodness. Um, Check out my book, the unpickled holiday survival guide. It's got lots of tips for family gatherings as well in there. And that's everything for this week until next time, everyone. Thanks so much for listening and do take good care. I did that, not proud that that was me And when I face it, I take back a little dignity Not looking for excuses, I just want to be free From power, weakness had on me In a dark corner is where shame
Just want to be free from power. 